have to teach us from your inspired word. Father, we pray, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, you would give us a vision to see the glory and the splendor and the majesty of the resurrected Christ. And Father, that as we see you in all your splendor, even this evening, Father, that we would grow in our love for you. And Lord, that we would grow in conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. And Lord, that you would work in us as your redeemed people. Lord, to display the gospel both through word and deed as we live our life together. So Father, we pray, Lord, that you would work uh, through this evening of worship and a study of your word. And Lord, that above all else, that you would build up the people here tonight uh, for your glory and for your glory alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm glad you guys are here tonight. If I haven't gotten to meet you yet, my name is Justin Dieter. Uh, I'm the pastor at Forest Hills Baptist Church in Wilson, North Carolina, and I really hope to be here the past few nights. I haven't been playing hooky, I promise, um, but I had a baby girl last week. <laughs> so uh, we've been uh, having some extra responsibilities at home uh, caring for an infant in the house. But her name's Ellie Gray. She's sweet. She's wonderful. And, uh, and so we, we are very excited to have her, but uh, I'm excited to be here tonight, and I'm uh, thankful for the invitation from Justin, from Dan. Uh, these two men have just become really wonderful friends to me. I'm thankful for so many pastors and churches just in this eastern North Carolina area that, that loves the Word of God, that loves the gospel, and uh, that seeks to be, be partnering and working together for the building up of the church, but also making disciples and reaching the lost within our communities. But the passage that was assigned to me was the parable of the unforgiving servant. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to look at verse 21 through verse 35. Now, I don't know how many of you have spent your life growing up in the church. I see a lot of younger people here tonight, and so uh, you are growing up in the church. I was a preacher's kid. I grew up as the son of a Southern Baptist preacher, and, and growing up in the church is a wonderful blessing. It's a wonderful gift, but growing up as a preacher's kid, not only do you see the wonderful blessings of Christian community, you get to see the underbelly of the church as well. That sometimes there are conflicts and arguments and uh, disgruntled members and committee meetings and business meetings that just, if you're can leave kind of a bad taste of your mouth a little bit growing up in the church because even in the church, people hurt each other. Even in the church, people uh, sin against one another. I remember uh, when I was in high school, I was in a town of Newberry, South Carolina. My dad was pastoring the church there. And I remember walking out of RAs. That's what we did uh, back then. Some churches still do that. Ours is one of them. Uh, RAs on that Wednesday night. And two men from our church were in a fist fight at the front of the church. I mean, conflict happens, doesn't it, in the church? Hopefully not fistfight conflict, but, but sin and hurting one another in the church is, is sometimes happens within the body. Even though we are the redeemed people of God, we are, have not yet been fully glorified and made perfect. We're still sinners. And so in this passage today, in this parable, Jesus is going to be addressing the issue of forgiveness primarily amongst the body of Christ. So let's read Matthew 18, 21 through 35, and then let's get to work. Here's the word of the Lord. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often 
will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. But... When the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father, will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. A stern warning and challenge from Jesus. And another vivid parable, an illustration Jesus the master teacher gives us. And what we're going to see as we study this parable together is that if we have received God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ, if we have truly received the forgiveness of God, if we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ and received forgiveness of our sins, then God's grace makes us forgiving people. It makes us forgiving people. Now, as we look at Matthew chapter 18, it's just so important to understand this particular parable, like so many of the parables, in the context of what's going on in Matthew chapter 18. Right before the passage we started reading in 18 verse 15, Jesus begins to discourse a little bit on the nature of Christian community, kingdom community, how it's to function, how it's to operate. And in verse 15, we see Jesus lays out the parameters for church discipline. How are we to handle handling a member of the church, a brother or sister in Christ, who is in unrepentant sin? How are we to handle that? And so church discipline really is a largely ignored teaching in many and most churches, particularly here in America. But, but Jesus lays out this process for us of, of how we are to understand handling these people. In many Baptist churches, which is my tradition where I come from, um, our theological distinctive of regenerate, born-again believer church membership has kind of been pushed to the side and ignored, and, and the church often becomes muddled, a mixed membership of both believers and unbelievers. And Jesus understood that the the church was to be a distinct community set apart as born-again believers in Jesus Christ. And although unbelievers are welcome to come and join and hear the gospel and see the Christian community in action, 
membership and belonging to that church was reserved for believers. And so church discipline that Jesus lays out for us here is the process of removing those who refuse to repent from sins from the community of the church. Now, I've not been pastoring nearly as long as some of the other pastors who have been preaching at this conference, but one of the things I did learn very quickly growing up as a preacher's kid is that people sin against one another. People hurt one another often very badly. And though we are redeemed, we are still fallen sinners. And sometimes that old man, that old woman, that old self gets the best of us and begins to come out in our interactions with our other brothers and sisters in Christ. We can be mean. We can gossip behind another person's back. We can be prideful. We can be arrogant. We can ridicule and mock another person. There are ways that that we do this often and over and over again. And there is so many ways that the body of Christ is hurt with even more open and more flagrant and fleshly sin. It's not uncommon to hear stories of church members who've committed adultery, who've committed sexual sin, who've committed divorce, who are greedy, who are lying, who are cheating. All of this can creep into the life of the church, these sinful acts, these sinful habits. And and here, I think, is the real danger for the type of churches that are attending this conference, who value the church, who have a high understanding of the nature of the church as the redeemed people of God. The real danger, the real issue is that it's easy for us to begin to look down on weaker members who struggle with sin and get incredibly frustrated with them. It's easy for us to begin to to even look down in prideful, condescending judgment. How often are you really going to mess up? Why can't you get over this issue? Why are you still struggling with this sin in your life? Why, Why can't you move beyond this? It's been five years. Really? I mean, are you still struggling with finding your identity in your career? Get over it. Get and move on. Find your identity in Christ. You know, we get we get frustrated with people. You mean you still struggle with pornography? Come on. Get over it. You know, we can get frustrated as we sin against one another and as we witness members of our church who struggle with sin. It's easy to get frustrated with them. You know, is this the 20th time we've had to deal with this? Is this the 20th time you've had to ask for forgiveness? What's your issue? This is the attitude that many of us can have as we think about the relationship one with another with people who sin against us and sin against God. And so Peter is hearing Jesus talk about this idea of of handling sinners within the church, about church discipline, and Peter steps up to the plate. I love Peter because Peter says things that often get him in trouble. He's he's like so many other things. He just says whatever he's thinking. And so he's listening to Jesus teach on church discipline, and he's trying to get some brownie points. Just like a kid in school, he wants to say something that earns the affection and the praise of his teacher. And so Peter put his foot in his mouth, just like so many of us, and he's hearing Jesus process this issue, teach on the issue, the nature of Christian community, and he says, all right, I've got something that's going to impress Jesus. I've got a super spiritual answer that's really going to demonstrate just how, how much I'm jiving with Jesus here. And so, so typically in most uh, Jewish understandings, you know, if you forgave someone three times, that was enough. 
right? If you forgave someone three times over the same issues, you more than did your share of being forgiving, right? So you kind of met the demand of being a forgiving person. You've met that requirement of the law. So, so Peter, knowing that this is kind of the tradition that he's grown up with, he's like, all right, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take that three times, I'm going to double it to six, and then I'm going to add one to it just to show Jesus how serious I am about forgiving people. So, so he asked Jesus in verse 21, how often do I forgive my brother? As much as seven times? I mean, Peter's pretty impressed with his answer. And that's, that's super spiritual. That's doubling plus one what the rest of the Jewish people do. I mean, this is an incredible display of per- forgiveness in Peter's eyes. But Jesus wasn't impressed with Peter's answer, was he? Now, Jesus tells him that you are not to forgive seven times, but seven times, 70 times. Jesus tells Peter that you have completely missed the point. The, the point isn't about numbers, about how many times you forgive somebody. The point is that my grace makes you a forgiving person. And so those who are in the kingdom of God ought to live their life in continual forgiveness towards one another, towards their brothers and sisters in Christ especially. And so one of the defining attributes, one of the defining characteristics and marks of a true believer in Jesus Christ is one of continual and consistent and even painful forgiveness towards one another. And to illustrate this point, to help Peter get it and to help us get it, Jesus gives us such a vivid parable to help us understand the true nature of forgiveness. Jesus is that master teacher. And this parable here is shocking. It really, really is. Jesus tells us that the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who is settling accounts with his servants. All right, so he's settling the accounts. He's taking those what are owed. He's calling in for payment. And one of the servants that Jesus tells us is brought in before this king is a man, a servant, who owed 10,000 talents. Now, that is an insurmountable amount of money. Jesus had a knack and a love for hyperbole, and he is certainly using it here. One talent equaled about 20 years of an average wage. All right, so just doing some basic math. All right, I'm sure some of you math geeks could do this in your head a little bit faster than me. I had to sit down with a calculator to do this. But so say the modern equivalent of a wage today is about $30,000 a year. So one talent would be about $600,000. Now, this guy doesn't show just one talent. How many talents does he owe? 10,000 talents. So this servant owed about the equivalent of $6 billion to this king. I mean, this is an insurmountable amount of money. I mean, this servant could never, it's even not even quantifiable. I have a hard time picturing what a million dollars would look like, let alone six billion dollars. But this is what this servant owed this king. It's an unfathomable number. And obviously, I mean, you know this, if you owed six billion dollars, would you ever be able to repay that? No. Even if you worked forever, you would never be able to pay this. This is a debt that this servant could never, ever pay. He was completely and totally up the creek without a paddle, as the old southern saying goes. He had no chance. He, he was going to lose everything. This is a debt that he could not be paid. And as was customary in the first century, if you couldn't pay your debts, the repo man was coming. And the repo man wasn't just taking your car or foreclosing on your house, but the government had the right to throw you in prison 
and to put you into slavery to pay your debts. And this is what's getting ready to happen to this man. He can't pay it. There's no way he could ever pay it. And he's getting ready to lose everything. He's going to lose it all. And so this man cries out in desperation to the king. He begins pleading. He begins begging, have patience with me. Give me a little more time and I will pay you everything. Now you and I both know, and so does the king, this guy's never paying him back, is he? He knows that this statement is just wishful thinking. He is never going to be able to pay this king back what he is owed. Even if he worked the rest of his life, giving every penny he made to pay back this debt, it would take him 200,000 years <laughs> to be able to pay this debt back. I mean, he, he would never be able to do it. The king knows this. The man knows this. I mean, he's grasping at straws here. Wishful thinking. And then something amazing happens. Something astonishing happens. Something radical. Something scandalous. Is that the king sees the, ser- the begging servant pleading for his life, pleading for his situation, and he has compassion on him, and he forgives him, and he forgives this servant the $6 billion that he owes him. He's free. He doesn't have that weight around his shoulders anymore. Now, hopefully many of you are fortunate enough not to have ever been in debt in your life, but debt has an enslaving feel to it, doesn't it? Especially if you're old enough to, to have some debt. Student loan debt in particular, speaking from personal experience. It's enslaving. It's got a weight to it. And at this moment, when this king forgave this man of his $6 billion debt, he was freed. He was liberated from the burden. He got his life back. I mean, this is a radical display of forgiveness that this king shows him. And we have to just pause here for a second and just think about the, what Jesus is trying to teach us just in this act of the king forgiving. It's not the main point of the parable, but there's some implications here we just can't gloss over. One of them is this, is that the debt we owe God can never be paid back. It can never be paid back. Our sin debt to God is insurmountable, unfathomable. You know, I think one of the, the great mistakes I think the modern church, particularly in America, makes is we just minimize sin so much. We just don't think our sin is a big deal. We don't really think we've done anything to hurt God that badly. But the issue of our sin is who we've sinned against. God is a holy God a perfect God, a blameless God, and we sinned greatly against him. He is holy, and we've defiled his holiness. We've made a mockery of his justice. And this sin debt that we owe God, we are so indebted to him that we could never, ever hope to pay it back. No matter how many good works we try to do, no matter how many old ladies we try to help across the street, no matter how faithful our church attendance, even if we give over 10% of our money to the church, it doesn't matter. None of it's going to be enough to earn and to be able to pay back the sin debt that we owe God. It is incalculable what we owe God. Another thing we observe just about the, the generosity from this king is that the debt we owe enslaves us and destroys us. You see, our sin is not just something that glosses over. It's no big deal. This man's debt in this parable is getting ready to cost him everything. And when it comes to your sin and my sin, it's not something to gloss over, but it does enslave us and it does destroy us. You know the verse, for the wages of sin is what? Is death. 
is death. This is what we deserve. This, this weight that we owe the King of kings and the Lord of lords that we can never pay back, it will destroy us, and we will pay back that debt in a place called hell one day if we are apart from Christ. This man is getting ready to, to go to that place, to, to lose everything. And that leads us to the third thing we sing about the generosity of this king, is that the debt we owe God is forgiven by the compassionate and forgiving king. You know, God, by his grace and by his mercy, provided a way for your debt to be paid. This is the wonderful, glorious good news of the gospel that the King of kings and the lords of lords absorbs the penalty for your sin, the debt for your sin, and your place. Let me ask you a question. In this parable Jesus is teaching, who was the one that got the bad end of the stick here? Who was the one that absorbed the $6 billion? Was it not the king? He was the one that borrowed it to him in the first place. You see, the king absorbed the penalty. He absorbed the debt. The debt didn't just disappear. Someone had to pay it. And the king, within his own wealthy pockets, paid that price. And how does God pay for the debt of our own sin? Well, he does it through his own son, Jesus Christ. And he sends Christ into this world, fully God, fully man, to die in the place of sinners. So that as Jesus hangs on the cross, he dies bearing the full penalty for your sin, bearing the full wrath of God in your place so that you could be forgiven, so that your debt could be paid for. This is the heart of the Christian gospel. And I don't want to assume, even at a Christian conference like this, that every single one of you know the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we think about what it means to be a Christian, and as we think about who God is, forgiveness is it. God has provided a way for you to receive forgiveness. This is debt and this crushing guilt that you face in your life. You can be freed from. You could be liberated from by laying down your life, begging forgiveness from the King Jesus. And God, by his grace, has provided a way for you to be redeemed, for you to be saved, for you to be forgiven. Amazing. And so I would urge you, if you do not know Christ here this evening, to turn from your sins even now and call out in faith to Jesus Christ because the King of kings is a forgiving one. He's compassionate. He has pity on us, and he has made a way for our salvation. This is a wonderful display of generosity. That's just part one of the parable. Jesus' main point comes in part two. So what happens to this servant? This servant is forgiven a $6 billion, 10,000-talent debt. That's a life-changing experience, isn't it? If you were forgiven $6 billion, you would probably be a different person. You should be, at least, if you found this out. So what does the servant do? We're told almost immediately, as soon as he walks out of the king's presence, what's the first thing he thinks about? You know, there's a guy down the street that owes me some money. <laughs> I, need to go, I need to go collect that. He owes me 100 denarii. Now, 100 denarii is still a good chunk of change. One denarii was about one day's wage, so it would be the modern equivalent of about $12,000. Still a good bit of money, but nothing minuscule in comparison to the $6 billion, isn't it? 
It's, it's nothing. So this servant goes up to this other servant, and he doesn't even speak to him, does he? He doesn't say, hey, oh, by the way, you owe me some money. What does Jesus say? He just goes and he starts putting him in a chokehold. All right? It's wrestling style. This, the servant goes in, and his inner Hulk Hogan starts to come out. All right? He's turning into the, the Hulk, and he just starts demanding hostily, pay me what you owe and do it now. He has completely lost his patience with this guy. This servant is angry. He is hostile. He is violent. He is malicious. He is selfish. He is greedy. This guy's a brute. He's a thug walking around the street, beating up random people, demanding payment for his money. You see, even though this servant had been forgiven 10,000 talents, the heart of this servant never changed, did he? He's a wicked, wicked man. His heart is revealed in this situation. And so this guy who owes him a hundred denarii, he's getting, getting a snot beat out of him. Or he's getting a black eye. He's getting bruised up by this man. And he says, have patience with me. I can, I'll pay you what you owe. Doesn't that sound familiar? Who said that just a few verses earlier? Well, it was the servant, wasn't it? As he was pleading before the king, now this same man who owes this servant a hundred denarii is pleading the same thing. And this is a realistic thing. I mean, this guy could literally, he could pay back a hundred denarii. It's not that big of a deal. It'll take a little time, but it's doable. But what does this wicked servant do? No, he feels entitled. And so he takes this man and he throws him into prison until he can pay his debt. You see, this wicked servant had not been changed by the forgiveness of the king at all. He is an entitled hypocrite who thinks he deserves grace, but no one else does. This is what this wicked servant is like. He believes that, that he deserves forgiveness, but nobody else deserves forgiveness, especially not from him. He's not going to give them forgiveness. He is so hardened. He is so wicked in his heart, his greed and selfishness rule in his life that he refuses to show forgiveness to his brother, to his servant. Now, word gets back to the king, doesn't it? This situation, this rumbling in the streets gets back to the king who had forgiven him of the 10,000 talent debt. And the king, he's not too happy, is he? In fact, the king is furious. And he summoned the wicked and unforgiving servant before him, and he condemns him. And so in response to the king's forgiveness... This servant, he should have responded by showing mercy to this other guy that owed him money, just as the king showed mercy on him. You know, so the king throws this wicked, unrepentant, unforgiving servant into prison until he can pay back his $6 billion debt. And we all know that's never going to happen. And then Jesus concludes this parable with a piercing, piercing word of application. As Jesus says, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. What is Jesus talking about here? What is he meaning? Is Jesus saying that we can lose our salvation if we don't forgive? That's kind of what it sounds like, doesn't it? What is Jesus getting at here? That's one of the questions that comes up as we study this parable. You know, if we don't demonstrate forgiveness to other people, does it like God forces us to pay back our debt. Again, it's like Jesus' sacrifice didn't matter. You know, if you've read Matthew before, you will know that Jesus really strongly emphasizes forgiveness almost as a condition for the forgiveness of God. Let me give you some examples. In the Sermon on the Mount, earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus, after instructing us on that famous Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, 
Right after he gives us that prayer, Jesus has this interesting little verses that people tend to forget about. In Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 14, he says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus says something similar in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So is Jesus teaching us here, this is confusing, is he teaching us here that we must forgive others and show them mercy in order to receive the mercy and forgiveness of God? No, (laughs) not at all. That's not what Jesus is teaching us here. So what is Jesus getting at in the Gospel of Matthew? Not only here in Matthew chapter 18, but even in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 6. What is he getting at in this teaching of the unforgiving servant? Well, the lesson is this. The evidence of one who has received, truly received the forgiveness of God is that they forgive others. It's a fruit of one who has been born again. If you have truly been forgiven by God, then you will become a forgiven person. So let me put the principle a little bit more negatively. If we do not show forgiveness to others, perhaps we haven't truly been forgiven by God in faith. This is the point that Jesus is making here. This is the point that Jesus is trying to help Peter understand. It's the point that we must understand here tonight. That one of the great evidences that we've been born again by the Spirit of God is that we display a life of humble forgiveness to those who sin against us. You see, to hold on to unforgiveness, to hold on to bitterness in our life, it not only poisons our soul, but it reveals that we do not truly and fully understand the forgiveness of God. Because if we understood it, we would be different people. You see, when we refuse to forgive others, we reveal that we we really don't fully understand the costly forgiveness that God has given to us. Even though others may offend and hurt us greatly, Jesus was hurt in far greater ways. Even though we may have been sinned against in such grievous and detestable ways, Jesus was sinned against far worse. The point is clear. Whatever sin has been committed against you in your life, and there might have been some people in your life who have really, really hurt you and sinned against you. Horrific ways. Ways not appropriate to talk about here in in front of the pulpit. But even though we might have been hurt greatly, the sin that we've committed against God is far, far greater. It really is. The debt others owe you is tiny, insignificant, compared to the infinite debt that you owe God for your own sin. And so when we, when we truly grasp the depths of God's love for us in Christ Jesus, when we realize just how great a debt Jesus paid for us in our place, it doesn't make forgiveness any either easier towards other people, but it does make it possible. It changes us. The forgiveness of God changes us from the inside out. And through the tears and through the pain, we can genuinely look at other people who have hurt us greatly and by the power of the Spirit of God tell them, I forgive you. Why? Because we are people who have been forgiven. And God has made us, by his grace, forgiving people. This is what God's grace does to us. Let me give you an illustration. The, the late Louis 
Zamperini. has been talked about a lot recently over the past few months. A movie came out in December called Unbroken. That was based off of his life. I haven't seen the movie yet, and I haven't gotten to read the, the book that the movie was based on, but I've been moved by this man's story as it's come out in the news and talked about online and in social media. And this man just serves as such a powerful example of forgiveness, of true forgiveness, forgiveness that comes only from a heart that has received the forgiveness of God. If you haven't heard about Zamperini, he was a prisoner of war during World War II in Japan. He was tortured. He was humiliated, particularly by one man nicknamed the Bird, who seemed to, to kind of be the vilest of the bunch, who, who seemed to have a, especially headed out with Zamperini in particular. And so Zamperini eventually was freed. He made it back to the States. And the story of Zamperini that I, from what I understand, doesn't get talked about in the movie is that he eventually came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior and as his Lord at a Billy Graham evangelistic revival. And so he came to know Jesus Christ. And having received the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ, it changed him. And he began to feel this need to express forgiveness to those back in Japan who wronged him so terribly. And so by God's grace, Zamperini, he was able to go back to Japan later in his life, see those prison guards face to face, those who tortured him, those who humiliated them. And he was able to look them in the eye and tell them, I forgive you. He was never able to meet with that one man I told you about who was nicknamed the bird. He wasn't there, and he wasn't able to see him. But he wanted to send him a letter. So Zamperini wrote this man a letter, and I want to read that letter to you that Zamperini sent to this man named the bird. Here's what Zamperini writes. As a result of my prisoner war experience under your unwarranted and unreasonable punishment, my post-war life became a nightmare. It was not so much due to the pain and suffering as it was the tension of stress and humiliation that caused me to hate with a vengeance. Under your discipline, my rights, not only as a prisoner of war, but also as a human being, were stripped from me. It was a struggle to maintain enough dignity and hope to live until the war's end. The post-war nightmares caused my life to crumble, but thanks to a confrontation with God through the evangelist Billy Graham, I committed my life to Christ. Love has replaced the hate I had for you. Christ said, forgive your enemies and pray for them. As you probably know, I returned to Japan in 1952 and was graciously allowed to address all the Japanese war criminals. I asked about you, and I was told that you probably had committed harakiri, which I was sad to hear. At that moment, like the others, I also forgave you and now would hope that you would also become a Christian. Louis Zamperini. What a powerful testimony of what the forgiveness of God does to a man when he truly understands what Christ has done. You see, even though Zamperini might have been treated unfairly and horrifically, and though you too might have been hurt in ways that we can't even imagine or discuss, the story of Christ and the story of God's forgiveness is wonderfully scandalous. You see, because though you might have been sinned greatly against, Jesus was sinned far greater. As the perfect and blameless Son of God was humiliated, hung naked on a tree with a crown of thorn above his heads, mocked, jeered, spit at. And as he hung on that cross, 
as he was humiliated, he did so willingly on his own volition so that you could be forgiven, so that you who were his enemies could be reconciled to the righteous and living God. And so Jesus hung on that tree to purchase the forgiveness that you and I so desperately need. And on that cross, Jesus cried out in one of his last words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So I'm not sure what's going on in your heart tonight. Perhaps there is someone in your life that you've been harboring bitterness against, hatred, unforgiveness to. I don't know what's going on in your life. I'm not sure who has hurt you and how they've hurt you. They've hurt you in some very real and very painful ways. Maybe it's a father. Maybe a mother, a husband, a wife, a child, a brother, a co-worker, a pastor, a church member, a friend. I don't know. But I do know this. In light of God's grace and forgiveness for you, you must forgive them. You must forgive them. No matter how difficult it must be, it may be, you must show them grace and mercy. Yes, it's going to be costly. Yes, it's hard sometimes to forgive and to really forgive from your heart as Jesus tells us here. But isn't God's forgiveness for you infinitely more costly? Didn't God go to far more lavish expense to purchase your own forgiveness? Didn't he display his love for you and purchase your forgiveness by the crushing of his own son? And so if God is so great to forgive you of your sin, Forgive others not just seven times, but 77 times and beyond. Let's pray together. Father, we come, and Lord, we thank you tonight for Jesus, for his teaching. But Lord, Father, above everything else, we thank you for Jesus' great work on the cross. Lord, that purchased our forgiveness, that purchased our redemption. And Father, Lord, we just praise you even here tonight for the glories of the cross. Father, I pray, Lord, that for those who have received the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ by faith, Lord, that you in their heart and in their life will make them forgiving people. Lord, that you would help them, Lord, to be able to forgive those who have hurt them so deeply and so wrongly. Lord, by understanding what you have done for them through your death on the cross. Lord, may your forgiveness be so powerful in their life, Lord, that it shapes them and makes them in according with your spirit to be forgiving people. But Father, I also pray for those in this room who do not know Christ, Lord, who are currently under the weight of the insurmountable debt that they owe you, God. Father, I pray, Lord, that by your grace and mercy that like that servant, they would fall on their face and beg for your forgiveness. Beg for your forgiveness. And God, that by your great grace and mercy, that you would save them and redeem them, and Lord, that you would call them to yourself, and Lord, that they would turn from their sins and turn from their wicked ways, and Lord, that they would find the peace, the hope, the joy that comes from knowing you as our Savior and as our Lord. Father, we thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for what he's done for us, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.